Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 2, verses 9 through 20. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for that reading. That makes me want to get up here and preach. Good morning. My name is Justin. I am the lead pastor here at the church. If, just, if you are just joining us, we are studying the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. You can turn your Bibles there with me if you want to. I would encourage you to do so. You, uh, you bring your own Bible to church. You can highlight. You can write in the margin. You can underline. Um, it's better than just reading it off the screen. So I'd encourage you to do that. Now, I want to give us some insight into this book really quick and some overview, that, and, and even some overview on the Bible as a whole, if you were just kind of jumping in with us this morning. The Bible is a very unique book, not only because it is inspired by God and without error in its original manuscripts, but also because it's a book made up of 66 different books. And of those different books, those books are made up of different genres of literature, there are, there's law code written in the scriptures. That's the stuff that's really boring. When you read it, you probably skip through it. There's genealogies. There's poetry. Some of you read that and get really confused. I do too, right? Um, there's historical narrative. There's prophecy. There's letters. And there's a, a really crazy genre called apocalyptic literature. Um, and Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, is a historical narrative. That's the genre of literature. Now, this genre is important for us to study because, for, for many reasons. One, it reminds us that God chose to work inside human history. 
that scripture and Christianity is not an anti-historical book. It's not a spiritual religion, all right? It's not just a spiritual religion about saving us and going to heaven when we die. There's things that have happened inside history that God spoke to real people in real places and he told them to do real things. The Bible is not a myth. The Bible is more than just spiritually true. It is actually historically true and verifiable. God is active still in human history. God is telling a story and his and history is our own backstory. So if you know, if you're in a story, it's important that you know the backstory, right? You know the backstory that informs us on who God is, what God has done to make us who we are, and what now are we to do. Secondly, reading and studying historical books like this increases our confidence and trust in the validity of Scripture. And that's very important for this day and age when college professors and lots of people on YouTube and lots of people in our society say things like, you can't really trust the Bible. The Bible is just a myth. The Bible is so old, it can't be verified. The Bible was formed by just a bunch of different people over time, changing stories and changing different things. There's a lot of attack and a negativity towards the Word of God. So when you understand that the Word of God has historical narrative, and that historical narrative is just is, can go on and be verified, that increases your confidence in the Word of God, and that decreases your confidence in all the so-called secular experts. And that's always a good thing. Now, here we see in our text today, Nehemiah goes out and he begins to inspect the walls of Jerusalem the walls that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. He inspects its gates and towers that have been burned and pulled down. Now, archaeologists have uncovered these structures, and they are just like Nehemiah said they were 2,500 years ago. I'm going to show you some of those pictures today, later on in the sermon, but um, as you see this, I hope it's going to increase your confidence and trust in the Word of God. Now, lastly, we study these historical books to learn, listen, what faithfulness to God looks like in the real world. Faithfulness is far more than just having a quiet time in the morning. Some of the guys were talking about uh, manhood and masculinity before the service, and we were talking about that like, the, the church is, is, not our church, but the church as a whole is, it has, is much more feminine than it is masculine. One of the reasons is because we've lost the mission of God. We lost what men are for. We don't know that God wants us to do something. And we think God saves us just so that we can have a quiet time in the morning with our Bible that has flower print all over it. Right? God wants more than that from us. God expects more than that for us. God has a mission and he, has, and he wants to raise up men to accomplish that mission. Now, we see one of those men here in Nehemiah. And for Nehemiah, obedience to God was gritty. Obedience to God was warfare. Obedience to God was a battle. Obedience to God was going to get, he was going to get opposition. For him, we saw last week, to remain faithful to God required him to leverage his career and take a huge risk in order to see God's mission accomplished in Jerusalem. He was in Persia serving the king, and God wanted to restore the city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah got a passion for that, got a heart for that, and he was willing to risk everything to accomplish that mission. So we have seen so far in this book that Nehemiah, he got, his heart was moved, he got, he got impassioned for that mission. 
He grieved and prayed and fasted in order to formulate a plan to see that city restored. Then Nehemiah, he kind of took spiritual ownership of that city, of the nation, of his family. He began to think covenantally about it, and that led him to deep repentance. He said, we have sinned against you, God. The city is destroyed because of our disobedience. The nation is in shambles because of our disobedience. It's not those guys out there that's the problem. It's me and my house. We've disobeyed you too, God. Would you change my heart? Would you give me courage? Would you forgive me of my sin and send me out to accomplish your mission in the world? He he prayed that God would bring God's people back from exile and that he would give him success before he went before the king and made his great ask. And last week, we saw a great picture of what faithfulness to God looks like in a broken world. Nehemiah, like a man of God, stepped out in faith. He goes before the king, even though he's scared to death, right? Remember, courage is being scared to death and doing the right thing anyways. Nehemiah displayed incredible courage, and God moved the heart of the king to give him everything he asked for. Now, this was quite astounding, right? He said, The king's like, okay, I see you're sad, right? What's wrong with your face? Remember that whole deal? What do you need from me? What do you want? I got business to do. And he says, I need some time off. He says, how much? 12 years, you got it, right? He's encouraged by this. So he just keeps asking, right? He gets an armed escort from Persia to Judah. He got permission to use the king's forest for lumber to build. And Nehemiah got all the success and he did not pat himself on the back, right? He did not add to his LinkedIn profile, right? He gave all the credit where credit was due, and that was to God. He said, the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, wouldn't it be great if the next line in the story was, and they lived happily ever after? No, parents write books like that because we want to go to bed. We know if you turn the page and the story kept going on, another problem would arise, right? You don't just get rid of one witch and then you walk walk away, right? There's more witches to come, right? There's more bad guys to come. There's more story to be told. Well, that is because of the world that we live in, the real world that we live in. Nehemiah is being faithful to God here in the real world, in the midst of incredible, incredibly difficult circumstances, and God blesses his work, but that does not mean that there won't be future opposition, setbacks, and danger. This reminds us, we are not living in a neutral world. Everything in our world is either in submission to God or in active rebellion to him. Now we suppress that reality. We think we're living in a neutral world where there's lots of people out there that are just kind of, you know, in, in between. I'm not really for God or against God. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me, right? So Jesus didn't see the world that way. Neither should we. Ultimately, there are only two types of people on this planet, those who love and serve King Jesus and those who hate him. Now, I know we don't like that kind of talk, We don't like that kind of worldview that kind of scares us. We're we're far more, we want to be far more nice than that. But that's not the case. Now, why is that the case? Why is there only black and white? Why is there only for God or against God? Why is it that stark? Well, because God is our creator. He created everything that exists 
that includes every human being to ever live, and he created us to worship and enjoy him. That's our purpose, right? Because of that, we owe God allegiance, perfect allegiance to him. We, we owe God a thousand hallelujahs. We owe God incessant praise and honor and obedience. We owe God that as our perfect and rightful creator. But we all know we have fallen short of that standard. We have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. We deserve death and judgment in hell for rebelling against our creator. However, God is gracious and chose to send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to stand in the gap for us as our representative, that Jesus obeyed where we disobeyed. Jesus succeeded where we fail. He did everything that we could not do, and he shows us what a perfect life lived unto God actually looks like, right? And then in a surprising turn of events, Jesus doesn't set up his rightful kingdom on this earth. He doesn't rule like Alexander the Great or Herod or Napoleon, Jesus actually gives up his earthly crown for a season to take the eternal punishment that we deserve for our sins. Jesus willingly goes to the cross in our place. And on the cross, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God that was meant for us. He takes the judicial punishment that we had earned through our disobedience. Jesus then is resurrected, proving that death has no hold on him. He is who, he's, who, who, who is prophesied to be and who he claimed to be, the sinless son of God. And what does God do? God exalts him as a king to his own right hand. And Jesus is in heaven right now at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning in heaven and over earth, extending his kingdom until the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk tells us. That Jesus is ruling the nations right now. Now listen, so many of us say, well, we owe God everything because he's our creator and we've rebelled against him, so that means we're either for him or against him. But thank God Jesus came and now we're all just neutral because we're all forgiven of our sin. No, 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 no. You don't realize that your judgment is twice as bad now that Jesus has come if you don't accept him. Why? Because God is your creator and Jesus is your savior, the one and only way back to God. See, for these reasons and many more, the apostle tells us in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So you see now here, Jesus is the only way to the Father. Jesus is the only way to be saved. Jesus is the only way to be forgiven of our sins and be brought right back into a right relationship with God. So not only have we rejected God as our creator, but we all, many of us have also rejected Jesus as our savior. Now, this is not a message that most people want to hear. They want to think, well, I haven't really rejected God or I haven't really rejected Jesus. I'm just kind of neutral. He's probably a good guy. Got nothing against the guy. But if he's the only, he's the son of God sent to save you. He's the only way that you can save him. You can't have a neutral reaction to him. You either love him and fall at his feet and call him Lord and Savior and thank you for doing this for me, or you reject him and say, no, I'll figure it out my own, on my own. What we see is the, as the Apostle Paul would 
he got saved and as he traveled around the world and he would go to different places, he would preach this gospel in a very pluralistic society, much like ours. All kinds of different religions, all kinds of different idols, all kinds of different spiritualities. And people did not have a mild reaction to him. Oh, Jesus is another way to God. Jesus is another God. Cool, I like this guy. That's not the way they responded to him. You see it in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Paul comes and starts preaching the gospel there, and the people get so mad, they start a riot. There's a 12,000-person st- stadium, and they fill this stadium, and they're just chanting, 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 trying to get Paul killed. Why? Because the economy and the society was built around the worship of Artemis. It was built around this idol. And they would make, they would literally, craftsmen would literally make idols. Like you go to Paris and you get these little Eiffel Towers and people make money off all that junk, right? We come home with something, oh, look, my Eiffel Tower keychain, right? They would do that in Ephesus too. And they were making money. And Paul shows up and says, Jesus Christ is king and all the, uh, these other gods are nothing but idols. And it infuriates them. It absolutely enrages them. Now, Paul goes on to tell us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we, Christians, are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That we are to put on the whole armor of God. That we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. See, the devil is a spirit. He, is, he was an angel. He's not all powerful like God is. He was a created angel gone rogue. But he's still real bad and he still wants to, in Jesus' words, steal, kill, and destroy from Christians. When God builds something, Satan wants to tear it down. When God blesses something, Satan wants to curse it. When, remember the, the parables Jesus uh, uh, shared. When God sows good seed, the, the devil comes in and sows bad seed in the midst of it. What does that mean? The devil is our real enemy. Paul tells us again, Ephesians 6, we battle not against flesh and blood. But here's the thing we need to see. The devil uses people to hurt us. The devil uses people to frustrate us. The devil uses people to tear down what God is building. Jesus here is, or Jesus is building a city on this earth. And the devil wants to burn it down. The devil wants to to sow chaos in our world and in our society. This is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 10. Now, if if you struggle with the mentality that we live in a neutral world and everybody's just kind of pretty good and this is kind of overkill and I don't like the stark difference between right and wrong, go read Matthew 10. Read Matthew 10 several times this week. Matthew 10, Jesus is a fire, just a a fire-breathing preacher in Matthew 10. And he's just like, if you're with us, if you're not with us, you're against us, all right? Like he's very black and white in this, in chapter 10. And he says this in verse 16. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. (laughs) I want to know if like the disciples were like, that doesn't sound like a great plan. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And he says this, So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be wise as serpents 
So you're going out in a world where the world is antagonistic to you. Be aware of that. Be wise as serpents, but be innocent as doves. Don't let the world corrupt you with that attitude. That we are, as my old football coach used to say, we are to keep our head on a swivel. That we are to be aware that we are sheep in the midst of wolves. And that there are real enemies around us who want to see us fail. And Jesus tells us this. Listen, this, I, this is so hard to say, but they hate us because they hate God. Again, in Matthew 10, Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, for a long time in America, that just hasn't been true of us. And there's some social commentators that are commenting on this phenomenon, and they said, basically, when we... When our forefathers arrived on the shores of America and they wanted to create a Christian nation a couple hundred years before the Constitution, that they, cre- they started this Christian nation and it was what we would call a positive world. Everyone believed in the goodness of Christianity. The majority of people that came to this continent believed in the goodness of Christianity. So Christianity was seen as a positive good to make the world a better place and society a better place. And then somehow in the last 100 years, Christianity shifted to this neutral world where Christianity is not really good for the world, but it's not, maybe, we're not against it. We're not, it's not bad. It's just kind of neutral. It's, you know, take it or leave it. Not a big deal. And we've lived in the neutral world for a long time. Now, if you're on a coast or in a big city, you've seen that neutral world disappear really fast. But in our quad cities, we live in, in an area that over the past five, maybe even 10 years, We've transitioned, again, from the positive world to the neutral world to the negative world, where now Christianity is seen as a negative to the world. It's, it's narrow-minded. It's exclusive and not inclusive. It's no longer good for society. And so now Christian, having the label of a Christian is actually a negative label that you don't want to have. You don't want to put the little Jesus fish on your business card. In a neutral world, in a positive world, that helps you get jobs. In a neutral world, it's neither here nor there. In a positive, they throw that card out. Nope. I don't want this bigot. Right? So we are stepping into a new season as the church where it's going to feel more like Jesus's day, more like the Apostle Paul's day, more like Nehemiah's day. You will be hated because they hate me. Because they hate Jesus. They hate his law. They hate what he says. They hate his ways. They hate the fact that he is king and they are not or we are not. Now, Nehemiah shows us today that this is nothing new. This antithesis, okay, is as old as the Garden of Eden. And we must be aware of it. Even if our personality is just all sunshine and rainbows and let's hold hands and all get along, we all need wisdom and prudence to be able to tell the difference between friend and foe between sheep and wolf, if we are to be successful, building the marriages, the families, the churches, and the institutions that God is calling us to build, okay? So I'm praying that God would help us develop that as we study the book of Nehemiah. Let me pray for us. We can jump right back into Ezra chapter 2. So Father God, we come before your word. We want to come before it humbly. 
We thank you for inspiring it. We thank you for keeping it. We thank you for protecting it. We thank you for getting it to us so that we can read the words and we can study the text this morning. You, through the power of your Holy Spirit, can speak to us. I pray that you would encourage men and women in this building, that you would encourage us to rise up and build to do what you've called us to do, that you would give us wisdom and prudence and be able to decipher the difference between friend and foe, that you would help us uh, navigate the complexities of our world with both grace and also courage. God, I am a sinful man and I can get carried away very easily, so I ask that you would um, control me this morning, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and none of me. I ask that your sheep would hear your voice and that uh, you would direct us and even direct our thoughts, direct our hearts towards you. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen. All right. So we are starting in verse 9 this morning. That was all the backstory, the first two or one and a half chapters. Now, what we've got is Nehemiah's got all the approval, and he's ready to go to Jerusalem, make that four-month travel, right? Remember, Ezra made that in the last book. Here we go, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. That is the province between Persia and Judah and Jerusalem, okay? And gave them the king's letters. Remember, the king gave him those letters that said, this guy has my approval. He can pass through your land. Do not bother him, right? Now, the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Now, this is an interesting detail, if you like interesting details. I do, so bear with me. Remember, when the king had given Ezra permission to go back, Ezra was a priest and a scribe, right? He was a religious professional. He was working in the religious sphere. We would say the sphere of the church. And the king said, I'll give you some army. I'll give you the army to go with you. And what did Ezra say? No, thanks. God will protect us. I don't need the king's army. I don't need that. I'm going to go and we're going to be protected by God. But now we have Nehemiah and Nehemiah is a governor. Nehemiah is working in the civil sphere, okay? He is working in the state, He's a state representative. So when the king says, I'll give you army and horsemen, he's like, yep, you will. That sounds great. I'll take all the swords you got, right? Protect me. Let's go. And not only that, it's not, just a, it's not because he was afraid. When a religious professional shows up with armed guards, everybody gets real nervous. You're about to press your religion on me, right? But when a governmental official shows up in armed, with armed guards, they go, oh, this guy's legit. This guy's coming from the king. You show, up, you show up by your own with a letter from the king. I got a letter from the king. We're going to start something. Everybody's like, yeah, you're one dude. I think he got that on the internet. I don't, I don't believe it. I don't believe it's legit, right? But he, he shows up with the king's men, right? He shows up with chariots. So this is an interesting uh, detail here. He's a governor, and so he comes with, with officers of the army and horsemen. Now, let's keep going in verse 10. But when Sanballat the Horonite... And Tobiah the Ammonite servant, Ammonite servant heard this, and servant means official, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. All right, here we are introduced to two, the two great antagonists in the book of Nehemiah, all right? If this was a movie, ominous music begins playing now, Right? No, 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 We got these two dudes showing up, Sanballat, Sanballat and Tobiah, 
right? These are the two tools, they're tools, that Satan uses to make Nehemiah's life and the work of rebuilding the city incredibly difficult and dangerous. And here's the deal. They don't just show up here. You read Nehemiah, they are a constant thorn in his side. These two men never quit uh, opposing the work of God. They never quit causing problems. Now, what are they mad at? Well, it tells us right in the text. They were great. They were, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. See, here we go. That neutral, that neutral worldview doesn't work in the real world. That they wanted to come back and rebuild the city of God. They already have the right worship of God. Now they want a safe place to do it in. They want a safe place where they can raise their family. They can worship their God. They can obey their God and build a, a civilization based on the word of God. Now, why would people oppose that? Because it's, it is antagonistic to their worldview. Here's what happens. We, we, we've learned this through Ezra. Worship and religion is at the center of every society. And that society's culture flows out from that. It's laws. It's morals. What, is it, what, is, what does it look like to raise a family? What does a family even look like? What's the right way to raise children? How do you educate those children? What's a good society look like? What does human flourishing look like? Christianity, the, our definition of all those things comes from the word of God. And it's very specific. And every other pagan religion is different from us and has a different view of human flourishing. And here's, here's the reality. We don't want those people to come here and we don't want them to flourish because I'm just going to say it like this. We like, this is what they, they, all those pagan nations, we like when our crops fail. We want to sacrifice our children to our gods in order to please the gods. Christianity says, no, 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 you protect life. You save life. You honor life. You don't sacrifice your children to the gods. You can't do that. We like the most powerful people in society being able to subjugate the poor. We like to be able to do that, the pagan nations. That's might makes right in our worldview. And, in, and God's worldview says, no, 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 you protect the rights of the poor. That the law is above the rich and the poor. It's not whoever gets might is right. It's the law is right. God is right. And we all have to submit to his law. See, these have practical implications for you, way you, the way you function as a society. Right? So these people, they don't want God's people to build a city. They don't want God's people to flourish. And they are mad about it. We see it. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So someone here had the audacity to seek the good of the city. And they did not want to see God's people safe and secure, able to worship their God, raise their kids in God's ways, and structure their society according to God's laws. These guys hate Nehemiah. They hate God's people because they hate God. Now, this is another really cool historical nugget that I'm going to give some of you that you really like, okay? In the year 331 BCE, it's before Christ, shortly after Alexander the Great conquered Palestine, the Samaritan leaders rose up in a revolt against him and they burned alive Andromachus. Andromachus was Alexander's prefect in Syria. So Alexander sent Andromachus to kind of governor, in, to be the governor in, in Syria. And these guys uh, didn't, want Alexander to, didn't want to be conquered by Alexander, so they burned him alive. That made Alexander a wee bit angry. 
And Alexander brought his army into town and conquered them and destroyed them. And as some and some uh, scribes and survivors grabbed up a bunch of scrolls, a bunch of very important documents, and they headed to the hills. And they found a cave up in the hills, and they threw all of these scrolls into this cave, and that's where they had their last stand. And they were all killed by Alexander's men. Now, what's interesting is in 1964, some Bedouins, Bedouins are camel breeders, some camel breeders took a break. And they took, some, they took a break in this little cave that they found. And when they went down in this cave, they found all of these scrolls, right? Literally 23, something like 2,300-year-old scrolls, okay? They found these scrolls, and these scrolls have now been, archaeologists, of course, go there. They start uh, bringing them up. And these scrolls are called the Elephantine Papyri, okay? Elephantine Papyri. You can Google all this if you want. I can't say uh, the name of this place. Well, I'm going to try it's called Wadi, W-A-D-I, Daliye, D-A-L-I-Y-E-H. Okay, you can Google that if you want when you get home and you can nerd out. It's really cool. But here's why I bring it all up. In these papyri, okay, in these ancient documents that have been historically verified, they mention Sanballat, the Horonot, the governor of Samaria. All right? So outside biblical source discovered by archaeologists, you can go and read it today, that little historical detail is verified by outside biblical sources, and that should, get, that should encourage us to trust our scriptures and when, it's reading, when, when we're in a historical document such as Nehemiah. All right, so there, there's that. Let's get to verse 11. We've got some verses to make up here. All right. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Now, this is interesting. Nehemiah, listen, we want to talk and teach about masculinity at Sacred City Church. We believe it's important for men to be masculine, women to be feminine, men to be men, women to be women. We think that's important. And when you're talking about masculinity, there's, all, there's a spectrum that you're always balanced. You don't want this just blind machismo type of man, and no, but nor, nor, nor do you want this kind of passive, um, lazy type of man. And you see Nehemiah, he walks that balance like perfectly. Okay? He's not this machismo man that I've got the orders from the king and he shows up to town and he's ready to wreck shop and just push things forward and just get to work. What does he do? He shows up, verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. He does nothing for three days. Maybe he took a nap, a real long nap. It was a tough journey. I don't know what he did, but what, he, what he's doing, at least he's showing patience. He's showing prudence. He's showing restraint. He wants to get the lay of the land. He want, he's got a vision from God, but he doesn't want to just force it. He wants to get the temperature of the people, see where things are at, okay? But he's not lazy either, okay? He's not sitting around for 30 days, okay? Or three years, right? Just praying, God, do it. God, do it. When God wants to do it, he'll build these walls. I'm waiting. Lord, build the walls. Lord, build the I know you want to build the walls, Lord. Lord, build the walls, right? He's not doing that. He knows if walls are to be built, human hands must get to work, right? And so it takes three days. He chills out. He rests. And he's formulating kind of a game plan here. And look at his game plan. Verse 12. Then I arose in the night. Hmm. Okay. Under the cover of darkness. Okay. He's doing something kind of secretive here. I and a few men with me. Okay. So he's got at least few guys that he can trust. And I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Now, this is interesting. 
God can speak to us. God can give us visions for our own life. God can speak to our heart, whether it's just through his word, like build a family and love me and serve God, or if it's more specific, like build a specific business or build a specific institution or plant a church. God can speak to us, but that vision is delicate. That vision is delicate, and you don't want to just share it with anybody. You just share it with your enemies, and it's going to go bad for you. You share it with people that ridicule and make fun of you, it might go bad for you. No, you should discern the times and season. When is the right time to share the vision that God's given you? And you should be patient with that. And so we see strategy here. We see Nehemiah is very strategic. I haven't told anybody my plans. The vision that God put in my heart, I haven't told anybody it. I'm going to go out at night, and I'm going to check things out first. He is keeping his cards close to his chest here. He's being wise as a serpent, as Jesus said. He doesn't know who is with him, who is against him. So he doesn't tell anyone right away what God has called him to do. Keep going. There is no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. So he was the only guy riding most likely a donkey. I went out by night by the valley gate, to the dragon spring. Now, here we go. We, we get some historical points. We get some archaeological, um, structural uh, things that are, that are in the city. And he starts naming them, okay? The valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. I wonder what they did there. Okay. Uh, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down <clears throat> and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. So he's making his way around the city and around the wall, and he's checking out everything. How big of a job is this? How difficult is this? How bad of a shape are things in right now? And he's going around. Then I, rode on, then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. So things are in such a horrible state. Once he gets to this place, it's just rubble, stone upon stro- stone, that his animal can't actually walk across there. <clears throat> Verse 15, then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Now, I want to help us get a visual of what's going on here, okay? So I've got some archaeological drawings and some 3D renderings of what actually was going on and what Jerusalem looked like in the time of Nehemiah. If we can put those up on the screen, I'd appreciate it. Okay. There you see um, Jerusalem. You see its great wall. Now that's what it's going to look like. That's what it looked like before, and that's what it's going to look like once it's rebuilt. You kind of see a set, there's a smaller wall that goes outside here that's got some settlements in it, but those people are, are, that's not what they're rebuilding. They're rebuilding the wall that goes around, and that's the temple, okay? That's the temple. Now let's, give, let's go to the next slide, okay? There's another 3D rendering of this wall. You can see some towers. You can see some gates. Those gates, all of those gates, the dung gate, the water gate, they all have different names. People are going to be sectioned off to work on the rebuilding of those things. Now let's go to the next slide. And this is what the wall actually looks like today. Okay. This has been, uh, archaeologists have dug here. And this is now the, the city, the new city of Jerusalem is built on top of this. Okay. So this has to be excavated and pulled out. That right there, those those stones, you can see that's the actual wall of, that Nehemiah rebuilds, okay? Those are the actual stones that they're going to quarry, they're going to cut, and they're going to set. Still there today. Go ahead, one more slide. That's uh, not great quality, but you can see, all, look at all those stones, right? Look at all those stones. There's a gate right there. 
There's a wall there. There's all kind of stuff going on. And that's probably what it looked like right now in, before Nehemiah builds. He gets to this place and he's like, yeah, my donkey can't walk on that, right? That's, that's, we're, in, we're in bad shape. But that, that's, what we're, that's what we're talking about, okay? So let's get here back into verse 16. <clears throat> and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. This, that's kind of funny. Nobody knows why I'm here, and I have a big job that they're going to do, they're going to accomplish. But he's hiding it for the governors. He's hiding it from the officials. He hasn't shared what's going on in his heart yet. He wanted to get out, and he wanted to do some reconnaissance and check out what's going on, right? Check out what does the job look like. And he goes on this nighttime fact-finding mission. He's scouting the city. He's gathering intel. And then here we go, verse 16. <clears throat> and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were due to do the work. Then I said to them, so now's the com- now comes the time to reveal the plan, to reveal the plot. Here's why I'm here. Here's what we're going to do. I said to them, and this is Nehemiah's communication strategy here. Here's how he lays out the vision for what God wants them to do. Number one, You see the trouble we are in. We're in a bad situation here. We can be conquered by any nation that surrounds us. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. So step number one, identify the problem. Identify the problem. In one sense, Nehemiah is an entrepreneur, Right? He's looking at the society and he sees what's the problem here? What do I have to, what, what, need, what need do I need to meet? Okay, step one, w- the city lies in ruins. Do you see it? Do you realize we're in a bad state? Do you realize our culture is in a bad state? He wants the people, may, they've been living there maybe their whole life. This is all they've known. They're used to losing. They're used to failing. They're used to being vulnerable. And Nehemiah's like, hey, 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 that ain't good. Look at this. Look at this. Look around us. Right? That ain't good. Step two. Come, let us. This is, he's including himself in this language. We're going to do this today, together. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Excuse me. <coughs> derision, we don't use that word very, very often. Derision means shame. That Jerusalem was looked at by the other nations as a shameful nation. Look at this nation. They can't even protect themselves. Look at this nation. They have no culture. They've got this little bitty worshiping community in there, but we could go in there and we could wipe them out at any time. What a joke. Therefore, their God must be a joke. And Nehemiah says, no, 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 no. Let's rise up. Let's build. Let's rebuild the walls and let's get rid of this shame. Let's get rid of this derision. Next step. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them, hey guys, it's not just me here doing this. I'm not just trying to motivate you. Look, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. So he's telling them, hey, I went to the king. I didn't die, right? And the king blessed me and sent me here. You saw the the troop I rolled in with. God's blessing is on the king and the king's blessing is on this endeavor. Now look. 
and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, here is the people's response. Let us rise up and build. Something about this vision that Nehemiah shared with them and the way that he shared it, it spoke to something deep inside of them and they said, let's go. We've been waiting to do this. We want to build this culture. We want to build this society. We want to rebuild these walls. We want to restore what's been broken. Let's go. Let's get to work. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. (laughs) It's been a long time since I swung a hammer, right? It's been a long time. I better do some deadlifts. We're going to be picking up some rocks here pretty soon. They strengthened their hand. This is going to take effort. This is going to take work. I need to go talk to my wife about this. I'm going to be outside the home significantly more than I have been in the past few years. I'm going to be working really hard, more, harder than I have in the past few years. I need to strengthen my hand for the work. This is girding up your loins. This is putting steel in your spine. This is deciding I've got a tough season ahead of me and I'm going to put my head down and we're going to focus on this one goal together and we're going to move forward for the kingdom of God. I love it. Verse 19. Do you see how like, yeah, I mean, that's how I'd be like, like, like the football coach comes out and he's, he's giving the halftime speech and you're like, yeah. And then you walk out and realize that the other team is twice your size, <laughs> right? It's basically what happens here. Verse 19, but when, oh, here they are again. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, uh-oh, And Geshem, the Arab, heard of it. Now, here's what's happening. Sanballat, as governor, he sent letters to other governors of other provinces. And now, these are the three provinces that surround, the three nations that surround Jerusalem. And he's got them all together, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So now these guys are all making an alliance. Why? Because they all hate God. They all hate the one God of the universe and they want to destroy this work and they don't want to see a a church planted and a city built and a nation uh, created or restored. They don't want to see it. So they unite together to come against Nehemiah and the people of God. And this is what they say. Here is the scouting report on the enemy. Remember, Satan is behind this, but he's inspiring human beings to do this. And here's the enemy's tactics. They got more. First off, they gather another king around them. Then they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, the first step is to make fun of them. Literally to make fun of them. Oh, you're going to rebuild your nation? Do you see the walls? Do you remember what we did to you before? They're mocking them. They're jeering them, right? They're they're making memes here, right? This is what they're doing. First tactic, make fun of them. Why? You want to discourage them. You're not, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? Are you, give me a break. You've been here your whole life and you've never done nothing. You can't build something in this city. You know we could come in anytime we want and destroy you. What a joke. You're a joke. You're a joke. He's making fun of them. He's, they're mocking them. 
Now listen, you think that we grow up and we grow out of that, right? You, you had it on the playground as a kid and they made fun of your jeans or they made fun of your shoes or they made fun of your hair or they made fun of whatever it is. And then you grow up and you become a man or a woman and you grow out of that. No, we don't. None of us want to be made fun of. None of us want to be to look like a fool. But this is the tactic. They, they start with Nehemiah. Then, this is where... It, so, acceptance is the first thing. Kind of, you know, shame and they're just going to make fun of him. Mockery. But then now the second tactic is fear. They begin to impute impure motives. Lies about Nehemiah and his character. You're only building the city because you want to overthrow the king. They are claiming that Nehemiah is trying to start an insurrection against the king. You're going to create this kingdom just so you can take over Assyria. Does the king know what you're doing? Now, that kind of accusation is good for the headlines. Nehemiah starts insurrection. It's been said that a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. If that kind of lie gets back to the king, what's the king going to do? How's the king going to respond to this? The king might take away his blessing. The king might take away the troops. The king might send troops to take him out. So the first two weapons that the enemies of God use against the people of God to stop Nehemiah from doing what God's called him to do is mockery and fear. And Nehemiah, again... Nehemiah is a better man than I. Nehemiah refuses to take his attention off the vision and off the goal and put it on the enemies. That's what the enemies want, right? Like you wrestle with a pig, guess what? Guess who enjoys it? The pig, all right? And you both get dirty, right? Nehemiah's like, I have a vision. I'm not gonna pay attention to Sanballat and Tobiah. I, I'm, so this is what he says to them. I love it. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, again, will arise and build. That's the theme of this text. Arise and build. Get up and build. Get to work. Look, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right claim in Jerusalem. This is sheep and goats language. This is sheep and wolf language. He can clearly see you're an enemy of God, and we are the people of God, and we're moving forward, and I don't have time for you. That's what he's got. My focus is on the mission and the vision of God, and I don't have time for this. Nehemiah does not seem to be phased by his opposition. He is confident that God's hand of blessing is on him, and he isn't afraid to tell his enemies that the God of heaven is more powerful than they are, and he is the one who is in charge. He basically tells them, go ahead, do your worst. This isn't about you. We have a job to do for Jesus, and we are going to get to work doing it. Do your worst. Listen, I think we need to let Nehemiah's example here really inspire us for living rightly in a negative world that we find ourselves in right now. We need to trust God like Nehemiah did. Nehemiah has haters. If we are going to remain faithful to Jesus, we are going to have haters. 
We sang that song by Martin Luther, Martin Luther this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and it's based on Psalm 46. And one thing that I've been working on is, is memorizing Psalm 46, because you need that kind of language in your mind that our God is a refuge and strength in times of trouble. That though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, I will not fear, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, I will not fear. Why? Because God has a city. There is a city whose rivers make glad, or there's a stream whose, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. He is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. He will rescue her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We need this in our bones because we're living in a negative world. Think about this. Roughly 500 years after Nehemiah, spoiler alert, succeeds and rebuilds the city walls. Sorry, we're going to get there though. It's not going to be easy, okay? About 500 years later, Jesus, the Son of God, enters those gates. Jesus shows up and opposition arises. He is opposed by the religious leaders, the priests, the temple workers, the the teachers of the law, the ones who should be on Jesus' side. He's opposed by them. They claim he's doing ministry under the power of the devil. They call him a commandment breaker. They call him a drunkard. They call him a friend of sinners. And even though he remains sinless and obedient to God his entire life, they destroyed his reputation. They said he did miracles for either his own self-aggrandizement or because he's serving the devil. Then they illegally try him and they illegally convict him as a blasphemer and an insurrectionist, even though he was the sinless son of God with the rightful claim to the throne of the universe. This is why Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. The apostle Peter says it this way, quote, he committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. These people have unjustly condemned me, but I'm trusting God. God is working this out. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus did this for you. He was willing to be made fun of, to be mocked, to be beaten, to have his beard pulled from his face, to be unjustly condemned and killed so that you can be healed. But listen, that is our main message, but that is not our only message. When God heals you and he gives you that new identity, guess what you're called to do? Rise up and build. You're called to 
Obey God. You're called to do the works that he predestined for you to do beforehand, like our liturgy said. You're called to go out there and get things done, and you're called to follow Jesus' example. He isn't just our substitutional savior. He is also our example for how we are called to live our lives in our day and age in the midst of our enemies who wish us harm. That same text I was reading from 1 Peter, listen to verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. We are going to be persecuted. We are going to suffer. Are you ready for it? We are to rise up and build a Christian culture. What do I mean by that? Christian homes, Christian churches, Christian businesses, Christian schools, Christian institutions. We are called to rebuild. That's what we're called to do. We're to rise up and build even though we will suffer for it. We will be mocked. We'll be called names. People will try to stop us. When that happens, we are to be like Jesus and we are to be like Nehemiah. No matter what comes our way, we're going to remain faithful to God and we are moving forward. Amen? There's no other hope for the world. Jesus is the only way. He's the truth. He's the life. And the church is the only place he's found. Right? Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for this example that we see in Nehemiah. I thank you for this example of what a faithful man looks like in the midst of a negative culture. I pray that you would make us, men and women in this room, faithful men and women in the midst of our negative culture, that you would cause us to have a hopeful vision of the world, that you want to do a work of renewal and restoration. And yes, it begins in our hearts, and then it begins in our homes, and it begins in our MCs, and it begins in our churches. But let it spread out from here, Lord. Let your light spread out through our city, because we believe the end of this battle, Jesus Christ is victorious, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That if Jesus be with us, who can be against us? A thousand shall fall at our side and 10,000 at our right hand, but it will not come nigh unto us because Jesus is our warrior king and he will be victorious. Father, I pray as we come together as this meal, we would eat this meal together and we will look at our brothers and sisters and we'll be encouraged by their presence here. That we are different. We come from all kinds of different backgrounds but we are here, united under the banner of Jesus Christ, united in one body. And we thank you that you are doing a work here in our midst. And Father God, let it spread out. So I pray that as we come this morning, we would remember your death, we would remember your resurrection, we would remember your spirit as you send us out to do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.